Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. My name is Peter. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH. We are pumped you are with us post-Easter weekend like Pastor Pastor Jeff had talked about. Hey, real quick note, uh, something very important we got to get to. Uh, Pastor Jeff has a very big birthday tomorrow. I'm not going to tell you the number. Yeah, you can give some woohoos if you want. Uh, I'm not going to say the number out loud. Okay, so um, anybody who, I I will just say the number. It's a very big number. Um, But but it's his birthday tomorrow, and we're so thankful. I'm especially thankful for Pastor Jeff. But uh, I do want to celebrate Easter. Uh, We had set a goal for ourselves, and I kind of let the church know, like, we hope to have over 700 People here uh, on the campus, unfortunately, we didn't have 700. We had 776 people here on campus. So uh, if you're one of those, awesome. Um, and not just the number. I mean, the, the, the number's cool. We had, we had 150 kids in here causing uh, chaos. And so the fact that it's clean in here, um, you should give kudos to the person who pushed the broom around. Um, me. Um, but, uh, but beyond that, we have baptisms, we do the cinnamon roll thing, and it was just a great weekend. I mean, the weather couldn't have been better for all that stuff. For all of you who were here, thank you uh, for, for making that happen. Uh, but we're, we're launching into a brand new series. We're in the book of Mark, um, and so if you have your Bibles, whether physical or digital, go ahead and flip open to Mark chapter 1. We're going to get there in just a a couple minutes, but as is true every single time uh, that, uh, that we launch into a new book of the Bible, as we're walking through it, we got to get some context. So we'll get to that in just a second um, as well. But as you're flipping open to that, um, I want you to, uh, to think about when you were maybe in junior high or high school or college or anything like that, a time you had to write a paper, like a, a paper that you had to write. Now, I really enjoyed writing paper. I would much rather, enjoy is probably a strong word. Sorry, let me take that back. I would much rather write a paper than take a test. I was a terrible test taker. Any terrible test takers in the room? Cool. Four of you, liars. (laughs) I'm so good at taking tests. Okay. Um, Anyway, I would much rather like, especially as I got to college when I would see the syllabus laid out or whatever, and at the end there wouldn't be like a final test, but it'd be like a final paper. I'm like, done. Don't got to worry about that class, right? Because I can explain away what it is that I believe, but uh, I can't always come up with your exact specific answer to a test. And so anytime that you wrote a paper, whether junior high, high school, college, maybe you still need to do some writing or presentations or whatever, um, you always have to keep the audience in mind. That's one of the things that you always have to do. And so, like, if I am going to write a paper about uh, the life cycle of a tree and how to make it grow really well, that that paper is going to look a lot different to a seven-year-old than it would be if I was to write that same paper to, like, a plant scientist, right, Or, or anything like that. And to be fair, that paper, regardless of who I wrote it to, is going to be full of lies because I know nothing about how to make a tree grow well, okay? And so, but you, but you have to keep your audience in mind. You always have to keep your audience in mind. Even when I'm preparing a, a message for Sunday, I have to keep my audience in mind who I'm thinking about, who I'm going to be giving this message to because I know, like for me, 30 to 45 minutes is about the top end that I can go uh, with the message, and even then, like 45 minutes if I'm preachy, and I might get preachy today, I don't know, okay? But, but, but that's kind of my top end, and I also know that about 20 minutes into my message, if I don't have some sort of story, some sort of joke, some sort of anecdote, half of you are going to be glazed over, okay? And half of you are going to be like, I'm done. 
I'm thinking about lunch. If he doesn't hurry up soon, we're going to be at the end of the line. This is going to be an issue, right? And so I have to keep in mind my audience as I am giving uh, my message, as I am preparing for, for all of those different things. And then on the other side, there's another group of people who I know that if, if I don't prepare uh, well enough and, and I use, don't use scripture in my message, not only am I not doing my job because I get paid to make sure that I am exegeting scripture correctly, uh, but beyond that, there's going to be a group of people who are very upset at me because I need to understand my audience. My audience, my congregation, the reason you are here is because you want to hear the word of God and how it does apply to our lives, right? So if I don't include that, I am failing my audience. I have to understand who it is that my audience um, is. And so for you, same thing, whether you're speaking or writing a paper or whatever, you need to keep your audience in mind. And in the same way, we're going to need to get some context for the book of Mark. Okay, we're going to need to do a little bit of groundwork to get us going. And so I just need you to know that we're going to spend like the first half of our time today in the classroom. Okay, and so for some of you, I know that's hard. I know anytime school gets brought up, you're like, oh, it's terrible at school, but I'm a great test taker. Liars, okay. <laughs> anyway. So we're going to spend a little bit of time in classroom, get some context for the broader picture, understand a little bit more about the book of Mark, and then we're going to launch in and we're going to get through verses 1 through 11 today. Sound good? Sound like a plan? All right, so let's, uh, let's lean in. So what, one of the things that we need to know about the, the gospel of Mark is it's, it's very succinct. It is the, the shortest uh, gospel that we have. And if memory serves me correctly, it's only 678 verses. The only reason I know that is because someone asked me how many verses were in it, and I asked Siri. Um, so it's a very short, kind of concise gospel account. And so what we're going to see is it takes off like a rocket straight out of, straight out of the gate. And so it's very tight, it's very loud, it's very bold, it's all of those things that you would assume that the Apostle Peter, who most people believe is actually the person who is dictating this, to Mark the evangelist. That's why we have the book of Mark and not the gospel of Peter, right? That's a small difference. But, but this book is very kind of verbose, and Mark is going to be writing to some very pragmatic uh, and mostly Roman readers as he records all of these accounts of Jesus, Okay, so he is talking largely to Gentiles here, not Jews. So if you are new to faith, you're new to church, there's two types of people in the world when it comes to the Bible. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. If you are not Jewish, you are a Gentile. Welcome to the family. The vast majority of us in here, I would say 99.9% .9 of us in here are Gentiles, and that's okay. And, and so he is writing this to, to a group of, of Roman citizens who really, man, they just want to think through things clearly. They want to come to a, an understanding that makes sense to them. Who is this Jesus guy? What is it that he did? They are very pragmatic as a, as a group. And this gospel, it has a very heavy burden on action. And, and most scholars probably agree when I say it's probably the, the most exciting collection of Jesus' stories. Because even as you look through it, and you can kind of flip through your Bible if you have it open, and just like title after title after title in those passages of like a whole bunch of different instances of Jesus' miracles and all of that stuff. So it's really just like full and, and jam, jammed pack. But, but let's, let's talk about who this Mark guy is for a second. Because a, a common question that gets asked is, you know, who are Jesus' disciples? Tell me, tell me four of Jesus' disciples. And a lot of people love to go to, oh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In which case, you'd be wrong. 
Okay, that's okay. You don't have to be right when it comes to that. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, sorry, the vast majority of those guys actually weren't Jesus' disciples in the first place. Okay, Mark, from all we know, and there's speculation regarding who he is, um, but, but we can say with pretty, pretty sound confidence, he's just a guy that Peter met, Peter brought him to Jesus, and then he kind of just became Jesus's, you know, ghostwriter for him, essentially. So a lot of people know him as Mark the Evangelist. That's all we really know about him outside of that. There's some theories and different things like that, but none of it really applies to today. So like I said before, this, this book is written primarily to Gentiles, okay? And so one of the reasons people believe that this book was written primarily to Gentiles is because it gives us more explanation uh, regarding like the context around Jewish history, Jewish culture, um, Jewish tradition, Jewish religion, like it, it broadens it a little bit. And we'll actually see an instance of that today, which helps us as a matter of fact, right? It helps us to understand that, oh, it was this person in this place specifically. So it gives us broader context. It's kind of like kind of like if, um, if, if you were to tell anybody in here, hey, meet me at Superior Dairy later, all of us would know what that means, right? All of us would know where it is where we were supposed to go. All of us would know that it is, it is difficult to get parking there. And even beyond that, you should probably get your ice cream to go because can we get an air conditioner in there, people, right? Instead of swamp coolers and a thousand people packed in there and, and an ice cream, this, like we get the context. All of us understand when somebody says, let's go to Superior Dairy, what that means. But if you were somebody who was maybe not from Hanford, not from Kings County, not from the Central Valley, and you said to them, hey, meet me at Superior Dairy, they'd probably have a difficult time understand why you want them to meet you at the best dairy in the world, right? Like, what, why, why is it that you want to meet me at a farm that's better than all other farms? That doesn't make any sense to me, right? So in the same way, Mark, in this book, explains context to them. It gives us a little bit more background because they wouldn't have been familiar with these different Jewish traditions, right? So he gives them a little bit broader context. And so all that fluff is, is, is necessary for them to be able to understand. And one of the last things we need to know about the writing of this is probably written somewhere between 54 and 64 AD, 54 and 68 AD, excuse me, give or take. We don't have a, a specific date of writing of this whole thing. So in short, we essentially have the memoirs of the apostle Peter regarding Jesus penned by Mark a guy we don't have a whole bunch of context for, to a group of pragmatic Romans about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. In short, that's the kind of, kind of the legs to this book. So why is it important? Well, we need to understand our audience. We need to understand that these are people who needed to understand not just what Jesus did, but they needed to have more context for different things that went down, where things happened, why they were important. These were people who, who weren't waiting for a Messiah, right? On this side of the cross in America specifically and, and back in the Old Testament, everybody was waiting for a Messiah, right? That's what the whole entire Old Testament is about after the fall in Genesis chapter 3 is this awaiting of the Messiah and the law gets passed down and, okay, yeah, you need to abide by the law, but when is this Messiah coming? And the prophets walk through and, and, and the Messiah is coming. Well, when is the Messiah coming? And, and then we get to, you know, the book of Matthew and Luke and John, and there's these birth narratives about Jesus coming onto the scene. And eventually, you know, we get to the fact that there is a Messiah. These people that Mark is writing to, these Roman pragmatics that he is writing, writing to, were not waiting for a Messiah. 
They had no context for a Messiah. They didn't care for a Messiah. So what Mark is doing here is he is doing his best to present evidence for a Messiah. So every single passage that we see, it's like Jesus is a Messiah, Jesus is a Messiah, Jesus is like over and over and over again. And that's why these, these stories lend so much credibility to it. So Mark is telling them, hey, the Jewish people were correct all along. A Messiah is coming. And so I think this is actually, this gospel is going to be very helpful to all of us. Because I think at, at some point, every single one of us needs to wrestle with some of these issues surrounding faith. Some of the things that we personally believe, that all of us hopefully personally believe. Because the vast majority of us in here didn't study ancient Jewish culture. We don't know how to read Greek and Hebrew. And all of us at some point need to be relatively pragmatic regarding what it is that we believe. Because I hope for at least some point, in some periods in your life, you've had to think really hard about what it is that you, that you believe. Do you believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God that is truthful in all that, that it claims? Do you believe that? And have you wrestled with that, with that question? Like, I don't know, do, do you believe, like, the most far-fetched story I think in the Bible is that there was a dude by the name of Jonah who got swallowed by a big fish, and that big fish vomited him out on a beach three days later just to accomplish the will of God that he was running away from? Like, do you believe that that happened? Like, do you believe all, do you believe that there was a virgin girl who got pregnant supernaturally by God to give birth to the Messiah of the world? Merry Christmas, everybody. Right? Or do you believe, like we celebrated last Sunday, that that same baby that, that that virgin girl gave birth to on Christmas eventually came, died, suffered, and died, was nailed to a cross, and then conquered death three days later, literally came back to life, was not resuscitated, was resurrected? Like, do you but do you believe these things? Are these things you've wrestled with? Even the idea of Jesus turning water to wine at the festival in Cana or the wedding in Cana or him healing people with, with, with leprosy, these are massive statements regarding who this man is. Massive statements. In the book of Mark, we're going to take a hard look at these stories. And throughout, I want you to be a pragmatist. I want you to be someone who is, who is examining these stories and thinking, do I actually believe the words that are written on this page? Because we can come to two conclusions. The conclusion can be, no, I don't believe that, in which case it, it demands nothing of you. Your life does not have to change. You can do whatever it is that you want to do in this life, and it does not matter. But if the answer is yes, then that changes every single thing about you. Not just the decisions that you make, but the spirit that lives inside of you, where you're going for eternity has massive implications of your life. So my, my hope for this series is that we can all be pragmatic together, take a good hard look at what it is that we believe, and then if the answer is yes, I believe those things, it has to dictate change. So all of that to be said, verse 1, chapter 1. Here we go. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. One of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, I want to be John the Baptist. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right, we're going to press pause there. We'll get to 9 and 11 in just a second, okay? So the first eight eight verses, rather, that we have in chapter one of the book of Mark. And the first verse, as we look at it, it kind of feels a little bit like a title. It's very succinct. It's very, it's very tight. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. All right, so I don't know about you, but if I am writing a gospel about Jesus, then I probably want to do my best to speak with as much clarity as I possibly can. I feel like I would want to make it very, very clear regarding what the book, what the book was about. Like, I wouldn't try to name it something really, really fancy and modern like redemption came down or anything like that. It's like, no, I'm going to be very, very clear to my audience of pragmatics that, hey, this is about Jesus. You are in the right spot. This is about Jesus, the Savior of the world. He was the Son of God. You are in the right spot. So it fits nicely with his aim for the book. So one of the things that you might uh, find interesting you probably won't, but I did, so you got to hear about it, um, is that unlike other Gospels, Mark just kind of jumps straight in. Like, you don't see a whole lot of lead up to who Jesus is. There's a reason that during Christmas time, we never preach from the book of Mark. It's because there's nothing about it. There's nothing about the nativity story. There's no genealogies in here. There is nothing about who Jesus is before this time. It's like, all right, and we're off. It's like, we've got no time for all of this other information. I need to explain to my audience exactly who Jesus is. And it's going to start by him coming and, and becoming the Messiah of the world. And so Mark goes into verses 2 and 3. And in verses 2 and 3, we see our, our first instance of him explaining in a little bit greater detail regarding some information that, that would have been common to the Jewish readers of the day. So, so oftentimes when you're reading your Bible, it would just say things like, it is written, or as it is written, right? It, it, Jesus quotes this a bunch, Paul quotes this a bunch in all of his epistles and that sort of thing. And so what we see here actually in verses, verses 2 and 3, he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. There's just a little bit more context for those readers, those Roman readers who maybe wouldn't know who Isaiah was, who the prophet was, or, or, or where this quote was coming from. Okay, so that's what I'm talking about when he's giving a little bit more context than a standard Jewish reader maybe would need to, uh, to under, understand. So he also wants to make sure everyone understands that this is a continuation from the Old Testament. Okay, that's his aim in calling back to the prophets. Everything that we know about Jesus points back to Jewish history. It points back to the creation. It points back to the law, the prophets. All of it was an on-ramp for Jesus being Savior of the world. So he talks about John the Baptist here. And just like that, we're swept up into this story. Like it is off. And he establishes a little bit of the setting here. He says the Judean countryside. He talks about everyone came um, out, of, out of Jerusalem, but we are off. And I think there's a slim chance he didn't know the birth narrative. 
Like maybe Peter just never talked to, to Mark about it or anything like that. I think that's a, a very slim chance he didn't know about it. But more than likely, he doesn't include this because his purpose in writing to his audience is to get them to understand the facts and the theological implications this would have had for Roman people's lives, not Jewish people's lives. Because the fulfillment of prophecy really didn't mean much to the Romans. Like I said, that would have been massive for a Jewish audience doesn't make a ton of difference to a Roman audience. So then we have in verse 4, we have Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. He is baptizing for the repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Interesting fact, fun fact. Did you know baptism is found nowhere in the Old Testament? It, we, like we're, our name is First Baptist Hanford, so like baptism's kind of a big deal to us. We did baptisms last week, like we see a body of water, like let's dunk some people in it, you know what I mean? Like that's just where we're at. But baptism isn't normally found in the Old Testament. It's not found anywhere in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the only instance that we know about baptism before John the Baptist comes on the scene, it was actually a pagan ritual by a group of people that Jeff talked to me about before last service. I was like, oh, tell me more. So he did, and now I can't unhear it, so you're not going to be able to unhear it. So what they would do is they would bring a group of people in or people into like this area, like this cut out area, and then they would walk a bull over the top of these people, and then someone would grab a sword and gut the bull, and then everything would fall on those people. Like it was a blood baptism. Like if you talk about the washing away of your sins by blood, like that is what, that, that is largely the only instance that we have at it. So next Easter, sign up for baptism. We're going to try something new. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we're not, we're not. And I don't think that was heretical. Okay. Um, but so, so that's the only instance we have of baptism. So all of this is completely and brand new to these people. This would have been strange to these, to these people. And so this baptism especially, it talks about, you know, the, the repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The Greek word here means a deliberate turning from their sins and the end result is forgiveness by God. So even here, Four, five, six verses in, we need to understand here that God's direct response to true repentance is forgiveness. Okay, this is before the Messiah even comes on the scene. This is as true today as it was then. Okay, and so there is a difference between the repentance, that physical turning away from your sin and walking the other direction, the act of sinning, versus the dominion of sin. So if you're a note taker, you're gonna enjoy this. We're gonna go on a little rabbit trail here, okay? The act of sinning versus the dominion of sin because these are two very different things. So last Easter, or last Easter, last Easter, so long ago, last Sunday, on Easter, we celebrated the resurrection of Christ, right? And, and Roman tells us that all who believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and confess with their lips that God raised him from the dead will be saved. That's Romans 10, 9 and 10. So it's our job to consistently do our best to turn from any sort of sin, to consistently do our best to become more holy as, as Jesus renews us, as his spirit renews us from the inside. Our job is to flee from that sin. Okay, this is the biblical definition. It's the theological definition, rather, of sanctification. It's us becoming more holy every single day as we become more and more like God. That being said, we still sin. All of us, every single day. Today, you've probably sinned already, right? Probably on the way to the church, and some, some point, you and your wife got mad at each other, and you spoke out of anger, wife to husband. Sorry, I'm just trying to give the guys a break. 
Okay, so at some point today, you've probably sinned, or, or later today, you will sin. We sin every day, and if you don't sin every way, can you please let me know? I need to get you on staff, right? Like, like we, all of us consistently sin. However, there is a difference between the act of sinning and the dominion of sin, living a sinful lifestyle. The dominion of sin means that you are consistently sinning regardless of what Jesus did, regardless of what the Bible says or how much the Holy Spirit convicts you of that sin. You do not change. That's the dominion of sin. And at some point, we have to question if we are actually living for Jesus, if we are simply living for our own sake. A great example of this is, uh, I mean, anytime you need a good uh, biblical example, just talk about eating healthy, okay? So we have all today, let's pretend like following God means I have decided to eat healthy, okay? Uh, we, we all know that's not true, but that, let's, let's just assume for the sake of time that that's what we have said. So we said, you know what? We're going to go on a diet. I'm eating so healthy, right? I, like it is great. And then something always happens around holidays, specifically on Easter, that Reese's does something real mean. They make these little Reese's eggs, that's full of joy. Like, that's the secret ingredient is just happiness in those, in those eggs. And so you do a dumb thing, and you're like, you know what? My kids would love this. And you put those Reese's eggs in those Easter baskets, and then you just can't take it anymore. And so you're like, you know what? I'm going to dip my hand into that kid's Easter basket, and I'm going to have one, two, seven of those, those Reese's eggs until I feel happy. But then eventually you get your head on straight and you're like, okay, that was dumb. I'm going to turn from that sin and I'm going to continue to live a healthy lifestyle at this point. That's the act of sinning. That is a sin. Not eating Reese's eggs is a sin um, or else I'd be the worst of these sinners. So, um, so anyway, so that would be the act of sin. You get your head on straight and I'm going to move back to living a healthy lifestyle. The dominion of sin is saying, I am going to live a healthy lifestyle. I am going to start eating healthier and then nothing that you ever do ever changes, right? As a matter of fact, those, those Reese's eggs are, are just the appetizer to the Cadbury eggs and the eventual Easter dessert that you have later, okay? Nothing ever changes from there. So we have a difference between the act of sinning and the dominion of sin. There is never a change from that point. So this baptism of repentance and forgiveness that John is talking about, he's saying, I, uh, people are saying, I am going to repent of my sins. I am actively turning away from those sins. And any sin from this point forward is going to be an act of sin, not living under the dominion of sin. Does that make sense? We all good? Shake your head. Nod your face as my youth pastor used to say. All right, cool. So... So this is real. So, so this, like, because of the fact that these people have made this decision to get baptized, to, to, to repent of their sins, like, it changed them. It changed their actions in the same way that when we say yes to Jesus, it should change our actions. When we actually believe the things or believe the things that we say that we believe, it should change us. So let's keep moving. Uh, in the following verses, it gives us a little bit of background regarding John the Baptist, who he was, okay, where he he kind of came from. And then John the Baptist gives one of his most famous lines in verses 7 and 8. It says, After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Such a good, humility, humble word picture. Then he says in verse 8, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
And so eight verses in, we see Jesus ushered on to the scene. So again, Jesus and John, these two, they're cousins, right? And so they probably, maybe they saw each other every once in a while, but at this point, actually, if you look in Matthew chapter three, uh, John doesn't recognize Jesus. And so for whatever reason, maybe they had never met each other. This is the only instance that we actually have of Jesus and John talking face-to-face with one another. There's one in a, a different gospel where it talks about Mary and Elizabeth met and John the Baptist started doing flips in Elizabeth's womb uh, when Jesus uh, got close or when Mary got close with Jesus in utero, right? And so um, this is the only instance that we see of, of these two together. And so we have Jesus in, in verse 9. It says, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So John finishes saying his famous line. John is probably baptizing for about six months or so. He's saying, hey, somebody's coming, somebody's coming, somebody's coming. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes. This is a very, very public event. Okay, if you rewind back to the first couple verses that we talked through, okay, it says everyone in all of Jerusalem came to get baptized. Everyone came to see John. This wasn't like a private baptism in somebody's pool where Jesus was like, hey, John, can you take care of me real quick? No, everybody would have seen Jesus come and get baptized at this point. So Mark doesn't talk about here Mary. Mark doesn't talk about Joseph. He doesn't talk about wise men. There's no donkey. There's no census. There's no prophecy regarding Jesus. There is nothing about angels. There is nothing about frankincense. There is nothing about his childhood. There is nothing about his adulthood before any of this. This right here is the first public profession of Jesus. And this is a massive, massive deal. So anytime you introduce something like baptism into, you know, Jew, this is at this point still Jewish history, Jewish culture, people are probably going to raise an eyebrow. Okay, so again, we talked about that baptism wasn't a thing in the Old Testament, and now we have a guy by the name of John the Baptist, the baptizer, literally, um, who, is, who is doing this. This would have raised eyebrows with readers, This passage is probably very, very problematic for first century early church Jews for a couple of reasons. Okay, the first reason is really that why are we adding a ceremony? We have all of our ceremonies. We have all of our rituals. We have all of the things that we do. If you want to get clean, there's some ceremonial hand washing that you can do that's laid out in the book of Leviticus for you. Go ahead and go do that. So this is is an odd thing, especially for somebody who is trying to convince an audience to do it, right? If I'm trying to convince an audience to do something, I'm trying to get them to agree with as much as I possibly can. Why would I throw some random story that maybe didn't happen into the midst of it, or at least people would have a hard time understanding it to happen in the first place? Okay, this actually lends credibility to the truthfulness of this story, to the truthfulness of Jesus's baptism, A couple years ago, uh, here's another instance of it. Uh, A couple years ago, we talked about um, how how all like the the resurrection story of Christ wouldn't have made sense to anybody in the early church. It wouldn't have actually convinced anybody in the early church. And one of the big reasons for that is that we have women who found Jesus first and found the empty tomb first. 
And so back in the first century, women weren't reliable witnesses. Okay? The, like the, their, their word was not on the same playing field as men. And so because of that, why would anybody introduce this into the story unless it was factually true? Okay? This is the same thing that we have here with this baptism of Jesus. Why would we introduce baptism unless this was both true as well as important? Okay? The other issue that this brings up is recall for a second why it was that John was baptizing people. He was baptizing people for the repentance and the forgiveness of what? Sins. Okay, well, what's one thing that we know about Jesus? Oh, that dude had no sin. Okay, again, this was going to be problematic for first century Jewish people. Okay, because of the fact that, like, hold up, we've been waiting for this Messiah forever, and we have this perfect kid, perfect, perfect Savior for us. Can you just imagine Mary and Elizabeth's conversations with John and Jesus? Like how annoying that would have been. Like Mary and Elizabeth are hanging out for some sort of Jewish tradition, right? And Mary's like, oh, Elizabeth, tell me, how's, how's John doing? Like he's fine, you know. He plays in the desert and he eats bugs all the time, but he's fine, right? And then Elizabeth asks Mary, how's Jesus? And she's like, well, He's perfect, <laughs> you know, like that would be a terrible conversation. And so all of them, all of them are waiting for this Messiah, this perfect spotless lamb to come onto the scene. And the first time we see him publicly, what does he do? He's about to get baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. This is problematic. This is hard. This doesn't make any sense, right? So why is it that Jesus would need to be baptized? Actually, again, in Matthew chapter 3, when it tells the same story, John the Baptist is like, I'm not baptizing you. He said, if anything, like he said, I'm not worthy to baptize you. If anything, you're the one who needs to baptize me. And Jesus is like, no, you need to, you need to baptize, baptize me. So why then? Well, Jesus's baptism is it, primarily, it wasn't a baptism of repentance. and couldn't have been right? He was, he was sinless. So he couldn't repent from anything unless he was repenting of being holy and trying to walk the other direction, which doesn't make any sense in the first place, right? So Jesus's baptism is not a baptism of repentance. Instead, that submersion in water was, it identified the person with the coming Messiah. And so Jesus is doing this out of an act of obedience to God, he is saying, yep, this is what I want you to do. Here's an example of what I want you to do from this point forward. And then something really cool happens, right? As he's coming up out of the water, we can see the language that's used there in verse 10. It says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit de descending on him like a dove. Okay, first of all, the heavens being torn open, right? He saw heaven being torn open. Every other gospel, it just kind of says, heaven opened up in some sort of various form okay when i talk about like mark is a, like his action like this is crazy this is a story that's happening so he uses words like the head and heaven was torn open you can see it right but then beyond this a lot of people think that everybody could hear this loud audible voice coming and everybody could see this spirit descending read it again it says just as jesus was coming up out of the water he saw jesus saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So it seems like the only person who saw and heard these things was actually Jesus. 
It wasn't everybody else who was there. And so I know that maybe that challenges some of your guys' preconceived notion that like God's big voice came down and was like, this is my son who I am well pleased or something like that. Okay, but if we look at the text, it looks like it is just Jesus that is able to see and hear this. I mean, regardless, could you imagine that word picture though? I mean, seeing, seeing heaven being torn open. So interestingly, this is one of the only few places in all of scripture that we see God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit all coming together at one time. Okay, we see it in creation. They're talked about a lot, but this place, they are all there and present. And so theologians, scholars, they'll use this passage to talk about the triune God, the fact that God is three distinct entities all in one. So we're 11 verses into this book. 11 verses into this book, and we have the full introduction of Jesus as the Messiah, a tie back to the Old Testament, a prophecy fulfilled in John the Baptist, the introduction of the Trinity, and Jesus starting his earthly ministry for the very first time. 11 verses in. We are warp speed into this entire thing. So again, as we walk into this book, we need to come to terms with what it is that we believe about all of this. We need to come to terms with what it is that we believe about Jesus because Mark, he's gonna pull no punches when it comes to any of this. He's gonna try to do his best to convince us of the deity of Christ and our need for a savior. And it's gonna come over and over and over again. That's really what I want all of us to walk away with today. Is the idea of, of just thinking, what does this actually mean for us? It's what we preached hard on last weekend. It's what we preach every week, that all of us are sinners in need of a Savior. And there is only one way to heaven, and that is through the repentance of sins and the following of Jesus. That's it. If you were here last week, man, you got an earful about that. Is that all of us are sinners in need of a Savior, and the only one who can save you is Jesus. Peter knew it, Mark knew it, John the Baptist knew it, Jesus knows it, and somehow we sit here and we read this and we think that it shouldn't impact our lives in some way. And I'll end with this. Last weekend was, was awesome, right? We had tons of people and, um, you know, we had places to take pictures and food, and it was incredible, Okay, but even as, as Jeff and I were, were talking, largely what we do on Easter isn't much different than what we do every single Sunday, every single week, with maybe the exception of having cinnamon rolls. And if that's all that's keeping you away, I'll buy you a cinnamon roll every single week. I promise. Just tithe. I'll use that money, and it'll come straight back to you. Cycle. But, but, but outside of some of those like flashier things, like this is just what we do. We come and we listen to music and, and we worship God through music. And then Jeff comes out and he makes some sort of corny opening joke. And he, every time he comes back and he says, I don't know about you, but those are the best announcements I've ever heard. I'm like, okay, Jeff, cool, man. You said that last week too. And then we do another song, and then we come, and then we open, open the Bible. Like, it was the same as every single weekend, but for some reason, Easter and Christmas are the only two days when everyone who is a Christian thinks that it is so important to attend church, to fellowship with believers, that they are willing to reschedule their day around it twice a year. That's what we think. 
And I know, I told you, like, well, we were going to be in the classroom for a while, we're in the classroom for a while, now I'm going to stomp on all of your toes. You're welcome. <laughs> but two days a year, and we think that, oh, yeah, that's normal, that's great, that's the best weekend that we had because a bunch of people showed up. And I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings this, this morning or anything like that, but, but, but like Easter and Christmas are the only two days a year that we are willing to rearrange our schedules to make sure that we can attend church, for the most part. I'm not saying all of you. And I'm not even, maybe I'm not even saying most of you. I don't know. Maybe those people aren't even here. Great. Congratulations. This can go over your head. But for some reason, like that's, like that we think those are the only two days that it's important enough for us to rearrange our schedule to hear about Jesus. It's one of the only two days where we think that hearing about Jesus and living for Jesus is so important that our day should look different. Church, if we believe what we say we believe, shouldn't that be every single day of our lives? Every single day of our lives, not just twice a year that our days should look different, and not just Sundays. And this isn't just a plea for everyone who was here last weekend to come back. Like, that's fine. You don't want to come back? Don't come back. There's plenty of other churches in town. Attend one. Like, I'm not going to take it personally, but it should mean that every single day, not just Sundays, the good news of Jesus, hear me, every single day, the good news of Jesus should be so disruptive to the way that we live our lives that we shouldn't do anything to make sure that we are honoring him, that we are living for him, that we are reading his word, that we are talking with him and communing with his spirit. That the good news of Jesus should be so disruptive that your life gets messed up every single day in the best possible way. And that's what Mark is going after. That's what Mark is doing his best to explain, that everything that we do should flow from our belief in Christ. Why? Because Christ is God. Jesus is God. Put your faith in that guy. That's what Mark goes after over and over and over again. And I think this is the problem with the church in America. I think the problem with the church in America is that, that we do not have a knowledge problem, church. We don't. Every single one of you, my guess, at least the vast majority of you in here, especially those who have been a part of church for a long time, you know more about who Jesus Christ is than anybody except probably the first century apostles. Maybe they're friends on top of that. That the person of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, has been studied more thoroughly than any other person to ever walk this earth. And you have access to 100% of that information in your pocket right now. It's not a knowledge problem that we have as a church, that America has as a church. I think we all know who Jesus is. And maybe there's some misrepresentations out there somewhere. Okay, But I think for the most part, we know who Jesus is. Everyone knows his name. So it isn't the knowledge of Jesus we are lacking. It is the action of the believer because of the knowledge of Jesus that is lacking. And that's hard to hear. That's hard to hear because if we truly believe this, if we truly believe what Mark is trying to convince his audience of, who now, by the way, we are his audience, like if this is true, it should impact every single piece of your life every single day of your life. And that's hard. So where, like, like, as we go from here, like for the remainder of this series, which congratulations is the majority of the rest of this year, <laughs> settle in. 
We need to wrestle with the question in the same way that first century Roman pragmatic readers had to wrestle with the question is, is this true? And if it is true, how should my life be different because of it? Amen? Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the gospel of Mark. God, thank you for just, I mean, big words and excitement and and just jumping into the ministry of your son. The important and fast-paced and exciting ministry that he did. So thank you for that. And God, I pray this morning that, that all of us would be pragmatists. All of us would think, do I actually believe the words that are written down in the Bible? Do I actually believe the words that Mark is putting forth? God, give us clarity in that. And God, beyond clarity, I would just pray that if the answer is yes to that question, that we would move on it. That we would respond accordingly. Father, maybe there's a couple group of people, a couple groups of people in here this morning. Maybe the first group is those who have never said yes to Jesus and Maybe something I said or your spirit just woke something up in them this morning, God. He said, it's time for you to make a profession of faith. So if that's you this morning, you can just pray along with me. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That I repent of those sins, that I actively turn away from those sins so I'm no longer living under the dominion of sin. I admit that. But B, I believe that you sent your son to die on a cross for me, for my, for my sins, to make me new. So regardless of what I've done, that you, your son has renewed me. And C, I would choose to follow him every single day of my life that I would understand that the gospel is disruptive. And maybe you fall into a a different category with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, which my guess would be that this is the majority of the people here this morning. And maybe you're in the category of simply somebody who said yes to Jesus at one point and either you're still living under the dominion of sin or, or you are continually participating in sin, or simply you believe the words that are written on the page, but you have, not, you have not changed anything about your life because of those words, that the gospel actually isn't disruptive to you. So if that's you this morning, I would actually ask you to pray the same prayer with me. Simply, Father, say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I'm sorry for not allowing your gospel to change me because I believe that you sent your son to die on a cross for me. And that should impact my life every single day as I choose to follow you. I love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.